I'm very delighted indeed to see everyone this evening. Uh, as Mary's actually been staying up at the monastery for the last few days, and um, as she was driving us down this evening, she said, "Wow, Thanksgiving! It's going to be a few people tonight. You know, it's all right." And so uh, I was expecting just three or four of us. So this is uh, <laughs> splendid to, to see uh, everyone taking this opportunity to uh, uh, include a little bit more of an explicitly spiritual element in the Thanksgiving uh, arena. Uh, so uh, la- this, uh, uh, for those of you uh, who um, weren't here last week, this is the second of a series of three little sessions on uh, compassion in action. Um, CIA, in brief, as uh, Mary's been pointing out, joined the CIA for three weeks. So. And um, so last week we we were exploring the the basis of compassion, what that what that is, and um, so, uh, some fundamental uh, practices for that. So we want to extend that a little bit this time, and particularly talking about uh, obstructions to compassion, because as we know, just having the idea to do something or be some way um, is not. Uh, it's not the whole story. It's, you just can't decide, oh well, I'm now going to be compassionate person or I'm going to stop being angry. You know, okay, I've given up anger from today on, that's it. You know, we can, just, we can decide all that we like, but the decision doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't carry the whole, the whole vote. So, um, one of the things that, um, so basically understanding that you know, we, we can have the idea or the intention to, to practice compassion, even if we understand what it truly is, but then there's often you know, habits or um, attitudes um, that, that get in the way, that obstruct that. And so hopefully we'll look at that this evening and, and help to clarify that area and see ways that we can work um, with that and transform that. Uh, last week I was talking about uh, the compassion, and there are several words for it in the scriptural language of, of Pali. Uh, one is karuna, which I talked about last week. Another is anukampa, which is less commonly used. And uh, the, the verb kampati means to tremble or to shake, uh, to quiver. And so anukampa means, um, uh, is often translated by the phrase to tremble for the welfare of all beings. So that's a lovely little phrase. Trembling for the welfare of all beings. Um, which is, uh, and in English, it's obviously difficult to catch the precise connotation because it's, but I, I love the way that it actually um, embodies that quality of resonating, actually like trembling. So maybe resonating for the, with, uh, with a concern for the welfare of all beings, or resonating with all beings. Because uh, primarily uh, the Buddhist understanding of true compassion is a a profound empathy. It's an an active empathy uh, with with other beings, and particularly with um, the states of suffering um, uh, that the the beings can experience, both ourselves and and others. So then to consider... um, what is it that uh, obstructs 
compassion? How do we how do we find um, ourselves getting uh, lost? Because in Buddhist psychology, to to experience compassion or the quality of compassion is not a state of suffering, so that the heart is open to the suffering of another, but you are not suffering because of that. So um, this is this is what we're aiming at. <laughs> That's the, the the principal goal is to find out how we can. Uh, Realize that and embody that. So the 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 things that we can find obstructing that that true uh, quality of, of profound empathy, but without any without suffering ourselves, is that we do suffer ourselves. That when we open our hearts to others and the suffering of others, we get swept up in that, and we get caught up in and um, uh, swept away in the the, the difficulty of others. Um, and then we, and because of the feeling of uh, of that identification with another suffering, then we can find ourselves feeling it's uh, you know resistant to, or feeling too vulnerable that we can't um, can't we can't let ourselves feel that it's too dangerous or too uh, harmful. We, uh, so we we um, shut down or, or armor ourselves or distance ourselves. Um, Another way that we uh, we find that this quality of compassion sort of obstructed or occluded is just uh, our ordinary mental habits, the way that we um, relate to things. We just we might have that idea of of wanting to be different or, or seeing that you know it'd be better to to um, have this uh, quality of profound, profound empathy, but we're just uh, our habits of um, uh, of relating are so strong that that, that those uh, that uh, quality of true empathy never really gets near the surface because we're we're drawn into the kind of reactive patterns either of shutting down or of uh, uh, and distancing oneself, hardening the heart, or of getting swept up and, and identifying with. And uh, the the uh, the third. Um, habit that we can have is that of just just plain ordinary selfishness like i got you know who needs compassion you know i've got mine yeah <laughs> i'm okay tough luck you know <laughs> and that uh, that basic sort of discarding of, of the feelings of others not really caring because you know uh, as they uh, as they i don't know if that that uh, peter sellers film ever made it over here it's called i'm all right jack but uh, the basic principle is, I've got mine. If you haven't got, if you haven't got yours, tough luck. <laughs> you know, I'm okay. So it's the um, the I'm all right, Jack uh, uh, attitude. So I'll assume that we're we're um, that those of us who've gathered here this evening um, are probably working on the basis of the of the uh, the first two of those that we would like to have a little more <laughs> in the way of compassion. We're not trying to cultivate total selfishness. Um, and to see, well, what are these two, these, these habits, these ways that we um, um, we find that, that compassionate principle being obstructed? So the, the first kind, um, the first way that um, we get caught up is, is through this quality of, of uh, identification with the suffering of others. And... Um, what you can call the the um, uh, becoming tendency, we get uh, we get caught in that painful feeling, and we identify with it. 
So this can be in, in many different many different ways that we get caught in it or that we work with it. So firstly, in terms of our, our attitude, it can just be a, a simple. Uh, it's just so painful to be exposed to the the suffering uh, of others. And um, in in Buddhist psychology, they talk about of with wholesome qualities. They talk about the near the near enemies that they have, so that. Um, the near enemy of compassion is pity, or um, that, uh, say, being entangled in the in the state of suffering of another. Um, so, like the the near enemy of something like equanimity would be callousness or indifference. So it's like a, it looks like it, but it's it's actually an unwholesome quality. So um, I was contemplating this and uh, this whole element of, of, say, being caught up in, in the suffering of others. And uh, I remembered um, when I was a small child, uh, I was actually forbidden to watch Bambi because uh, my, uh, my mother knew that it would take weeks for me to recover. <laughs> Seriously, I was in my 30s before I ever saw Bambi. It was on, it was on an in-flight... Um, in-flight movie um, thing, one of those planes where you have like four or five channels to choose from. And I thought, yeah, I've never seen, I saw the cartoon channel, I thought, I've never seen Bambi. <laughs> and then uh, I did manage to kind of contain myself, but uh, I was watching it thinking, you know, 35-year-old Buddhist monk, you know, I should hold it together. <laughs> but I could see, I could see why my, uh, my mother didn't want me to watch it, because uh, I would get so, so tearful. Um, when I, I saw any creature that was suffering, and she knew that that I was, uh, you know, Bambi was going to be way too much, <laughs> and I just wasn't going to recover. I remember there was a, a, a record, uh, a little um, 45 that my sister had, was that was called something like the little dog cried, and I wasn't allowed to listen to that either. It was like <laughs> forbidden. It was about this guy who died, and his dog went to the grave and was crying on the on the grave. It's like no way. <laughs> And she said when uh, she she first had the insight into this when um, we, we lived on a little farm and, and um, we had, um, what we were I was apparently watching the TV one one day with my sisters and it was Heidi. Are you familiar with the story of Heidi? So um, there were my sisters sort of sitting there, kind of glued to the screen. You know, you're watching with great interest. And, and my mother saw that I was sitting there too, and it's like tears just pouring down my face. This kind of some little element of heartbreak in the story. So I, I was on a sort of <laughs> regime <laughs> in my childhood uh, because I just I would suffer so much because of just uh, feeling very strongly for the 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 pain of, of others. So I think we can all we can all relate to that. So this is one way, just like sheer identification with the suffering of others. So there is a there's a beauty in that uh, openness, but also we can only cry so much, you know. Or, or just as someone was saying to me earlier uh, this evening, you know, you can empathise so much and really feel for another's suffering, but sometimes, you know, uh, we just uh, um, it is so painful. To, to live in that degree of, of pain, or also, or also just um, we feel that you know we're supposed to keep up with the other person's suffering, and they're you know they're, they're demanding or, or asking us to to kind of keep helping them, supporting them, and you realise this is a bottomless pit. 
you know that uh, there's it's like a feeding the habit of an of an addict. It's like there's there's no end here, and even though I'm giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, I'm getting exhausted. Um, and that we can feel it's very we don't want to be hard-hearted because the person's begging, asking for our, our help. So we 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 we're drawn in by that that pain. And then we find ourselves burned out and then resentful because the other keeps saying, help me, help me, help me. So that uh, the, you know, this way of, uh, of like getting drawn in and feeling like we're being terribly cruel or, or selfish to, to even shut down a little bit to others or to say, look, enough. <laughs> Whereas I was saying to a friend earlier this evening, it's like when you realize it gets to that point, sometimes like working with an addict it's like even if they say you know if you love me you'd you'd you know you'd pay attention or you'd listen or you'd, you wouldn't draw you wouldn't withdraw but you say uh, but that's like working with an addict it's like yes yeah, because I love you that I am withdrawing <laughs> it's because I do I do care that I'm not going to constantly feed your need for for being comforted so uh, another way that we um, sort of get away from the feeling of compassion is um, the genuine feeling of compassion is in in spiritual practices and meditation practices I remember reading a a book by a guy called Anthony DeMello I think he's a Catholic meditation teacher and he said um, uh, one of the key ways that we uh, escape from reality is through spiritual practice (laughs) this is a Catholic priest talking and so that there's a strange way whereby we can uh, we can feel like we're doing something like okay I'm going to do compassion practice and we sort of have a whole set of phrases that we do or we visualize Guan Yin or Chen Rezig or um, we have a whole sort of a battery of stuff um, that we are engaging in and so that our our sense of I should be doing something to to be more compassionate so we're engaging in that but it can be quite unconsciously this the we're feeding on the doingness and we're, we're fending off that that sense of of um, fear of opening to the suffering of another or that sense of vulnerability by by in a way creating a distraction like a, a, a legal <laughs> a, a legal uh, reason to not be attending to that because I'm, I'm doing compassion you know I'm, I'm paying my dues you know I'm, I'm practicing this and so that even though we might be going through the motions of of a practice, uh, we can, in a way, be sort of deflecting our attention from that real uh, openness that is is going to be most helpful. Another of the the ways that um, we we get lost um, is through um, intellectualizing or verbalizing, and, and I, I I hesitate. I mean, I'm a, a compulsive verbalizer. And explainer. I'm a, I'm a, like I often feel like I'm an answering machine. <laughs> they sort of come at me with your question, and I'll come up with an answer. Even if I don't know anything about it, I'll come up with an answer. <laughs> yeah, and, and infamous for the capacity to always have an answer for everything. And so, that just being uh, taking refuge in explaining, or so when we meet with the compassion of another being, either we explain things to ourselves. Or we get into explaining or intellectualizing to the, to another, and that, and even though on one level we can feel that we're being helpful, we're sort of that we're actually disconnecting 
where um, even though you're, you're there, maybe face to face, but you're actually protecting yourself or not actually really allowing the, the situation to be truly known by coming up with solutions for it. And I remember very vividly a, a, um, an account that a friend of ours um, gave to me of he was having a, a very um, intense uh, set to with his wife of the time and um, and she was uh, expressing all these sort of you know, grievances or difficulties or, or struggles, and um, and he was sitting there and sort of very patiently sort of trying to re- respond to everything that she was she was asking and saying and all these different difficulties she was describing, and then suddenly in mid sentence she stopped and said, "You think just like a man. Stop answering my questions and listen to me." <laughs> and he's like, and he's even more of a compulsive explainer than I am. So. And it just completely hit, knocked him sideways. And that's why he was recounting it to me. It's like it was so, it was a, such a different perspective because it's like, well, no, she's got a question, I answer the question, it's the end of the problem. Right? No. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> and that he had been, they'd been going on for like, you know, an hour and a half and he hadn't been noticing, well, he had been going on for like 10 years actually. <laughs> And he hadn't been noticing that that was, always, you know, if there was a problem, he would come up with an answer, an intellectual or verbal thing that would that would um, fill in the the missing piece. But that was actually you know, what what his wife needed was not to be answered, not to have it explained to her, but just to to be received, to to be heard, and. Uh, so when he passed that little that little gem on to me, I, I remember going away, going, hmm, mm. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> mm. oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, uh, because it's yeah. You know, and he wasn't saying it because it was like this is something you need to know, Amaro, but um, it was anyway. So <laughs> and it was incredibly helpful, and uh, and so I, I you know I, I find that. Um, just seeing the way that we can fen- we, that we do, particularly those of us who are very verbal, intellectual types, the way we, we fend off that other, we fend off others by seemingly kind of also connecting, but you know, kind of guarding ourselves in different ways. And then the, the last, but most probably the most important um, of the ways that we of mishandle or that genuine quality of compassion is is occluded is through activity, through doing stuff. And so that even though we might have a, a feeling of uh, being with a situation or seeing some kind of harm being done and, or somebody in a, a difficult state and, and we're moved to, to do something, um, often it's that we're we're trying we're dispelling that feeling of I want to do something I want to help this person to stop suffering and we but we we get lost in the doingness of it if you if you understand what I mean but that sheer um, I'm out there I'm doing at least I'm doing something and that even though good stuff can be done in that respect still we can be um, not really allowing ourselves to. Um, uh, to find this genuine quality of compassion because of, uh, of just say, getting so busy or seeing the goodness in terms of the stuff that gets done. 
you know, we're scoring points because of, you know, so many things that I did or so many um, people that are, are helped and, and people are thankful. And it's not, as I don't want to put down the, the, you know, the, the goodness of work that is done, but there's also, is to look at what's driving it within us, what's the, the, the agent that's, that's pushing it along. And oftentimes it's that feeling of, uh, I'm, f- I'm fending off this, this sense of my own incompleteness or my own insufficiency or, that, or the painfulness of another's suffering by just piling up the amount of, of, um, of uh, doing this. I've uh, often quoted a, a, a statistic I found um, really quite amazing. This was uh, from probably about eight or ten years ago now in Britain. They did a, a survey. They were doing a review of the um, social services, a very, very large social service um, in Britain. And so they, uh, they did this in-depth psychological profiles for, for the thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of, of social workers around the country. And, um, and they found, to their uh, amazement and horror, that something like 90% of social workers in Britain were almost compulsively needy of the affection of others. Like, you're virtually clinically dependent mm-hmm. on, on receiving affection and approval and affirmation from others. So they thought, what? Ninety percent of our people are sort of, you know, almost hospitalizable, <laughs> or certainly needing treatment, you know, because of their need to be loved by others. So, do we have to kind of scrap the entire social <laughs> social services and find a whole bunch of people who don't need that? But it was, but it was really striking. Yeah, these, you know, the people, all the social workers do do a, a great job. They really are there for for so many people in need, but. Uh, that was shocking and, and striking to them to see that how much the driving force was to be able to get it to to be having a job whereby over and over again during the course of the day you're getting oh you're so helpful I'm so glad that you're here this is really good you're so kind you're so lovely I really like it when you come to visit me and this is so helpful I, what would I do without you etc 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 I mean I enjoy that as a monk you know <laughs> I get a lot of that and I you know so I appreciate it maybe that's I'm one of the 90%, you know, <laughs> compulsively needy of other people's affection and approval. But the, at least that, and have, knowing that, um, was enabled them to sort of craft things so that uh, they were aware of that in the, the population. Also, uh, another of the things that we, we um, along with that just general sort of busyness and, and doingness that comes with compassionate action. Another of the ways that we um, can radically um, lose track of that, that beautiful and pure sense is just through um, getting swept up into a, a particular uh, uh, project or some issue and we end up um, you know, opposing things or harming things in support of your, you know, your kind of compassionate action, or your kind of noble intent, you then get swept up into obstruct, obstructing others or harming others. And uh, I think probably all of us have had the experience of uh, feeling a great deal of, of, kind of negativity and, uh, and anger and, and conflict and struggle in terms of in, 
in situations of pursuing noble goals. Is this strange to anyone? <laughs> you know, peace marches that are you know, extremely unpeaceful. You know, people are dedicated to saving the, the environment um, and out of the love of the, the natural order and, uh, and yet driven by intense degrees of, of anger and aversion and, and personal hatred for, uh, for such like. You know, so it's, you, know, you can see there's a noble intent or a, a, say a love of, of life or love of living things and others that's uh, behind it. But it, it can easily, if we lose track, of what we're doing get drawn into um, uh, states of, of great harming. So like people murdering doctors uh, at uh, abortion clinics and, or people just cultivating you know, hatred for loggers. You, know, you see someone as a logger and then <laughs> it's like the, the, the devil incarnate. And that uh, especially you know, in this area there's a, a lot of conflict between these different Groups of our of our society, the sort of eco-friendly types and the and the logging types, and that uh, we can easily seem to be like utterly, you know, opposed. And so, even though the initial motivation can be very noble and compassionate, yes, you want to save the forest, you want to save the the um, the atmosphere, you want to respect the life of uh, of the woods. But then it, uh, or you know, you want to preserve, you know, preserve human life, and and so then, you, by a, a succession of of small increments, we suddenly find ourselves you know filled with with rage and and uh, and uh, conflict and, and anger against some perceived enemy, them, whoever the, the them might be. So. You know, these are all ways that we uh, get swept up in the the kind of becoming side of of uh, mishandling the compassionate intention. The other the other angle, um, which is there's a little bit less to say about, which is but which can be equally harmful, is sort of more of a uh, a problem in sort of explicitly spiritual circles. And this is the the, the cutting off, um, so that we're say um, shutting down the whole sort of compassion. We're dealing with we're, we're sort of missing that compassionate spirit by just sort of shutting down. I, either a because we're just plain selfish, like you know, well I'm more, of course I'm more important than you. you know? <laughs> Tough luck. Or the other another side of it, which is. Uh, um, more common in spiritual circles is the sort of um, taking the the kind of ultimate reality escape clause, like saying, "Well, it's all empty." You know, what other beings? You know, you know, all beings are em- you know, all beings are, are, are void of, of self. Who's there to be compassionate for? You know, you're on your own. <laughs> if you exist, you're on your own. You know? and so that uh, this is a. Um, uh, you know, it's understandable, but particularly where you have this sort of, uh, high, very high-minded ultimate reality type teachings, we can take refuge in that um, that kind of uh, principles or transcendent principle. And even though we don't realize it, 
uh, even though we're taking it very lofty, it's, it doesn't seem anything like, you know, well, I'm more important than you. It seems far more um, uh, valid than that. But uh, still, it can be a basically selfish motivation. It's like um, the Ramdas used to always use this um, uh, example of um, saying, uh, people would say, you know, we're all one. Um, uh, you do the dishes. They <laughs> say, okay, and they say, well, okay, you're, we're all one. Okay, you know, I'll do the dishes. I'll take your wallet. You know. <laughs> But uh, if, if we're all one, then uh, the contents of your wallet are also you know, available for me, right? <laughs> so that we can we can misuse that that sort of vajra perspective, and um, and so in, in a way that can be we can see that as true. That yeah, okay, it's uh, if we have these deep insights into emptiness or not self, we can see how oh, there really is no self, no other. Um, and that if that insight is, is genuine, then it, it, um, it's not, the heart is not being cut off from anything, but it can be just taking that principle and then the, that um, self-centered attitude is co- you know, co-opting that and saying, hey, this is a great escape clause. <laughs> it means I don't have to bother, I don't have to think about you, I don't have to feel this, because hey, you know, you don't really exist, and neither do I. Whee! <laughs> so uh, it's... Uh, um, I can shut down. I can. I can not feel. So the principal ways that um, uh, are working with these, um, and um, just to, to speak about briefly, and then we'll have a meditation period, uh, is say primarily recognizing these these self-centered um, reflexes these different ways that we we do. And you can see that they're either um, protecting the, you know, either the, 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 the feeling of identification with another suffering, that I am that, that is mine, that belongs to me, the feeling of self-identifying with that, or the feeling of, of I kind of shutting down and, and, and protecting itself, you know, barricading it. So that the, the whole direction of of the practice and meditation needs to be in how can we cultivate the right effort without that being based on the feelings I and me and mine. Does that make sense? So that the um, the the distortions or the way that that compassion really gets occluded is that the stronger the sense of me is, um, stronger the sense of self and, and other, then the more the, uh, the heart is not able to genuinely relate from that basis of, of true compassion. And that the less there is a sense of self dominating the picture, then the more clearly we can, we can function. So that to, um, uh, uh, one of the practices I was mentioning last week is, is this quality of, of listening. Listening to the mind, listening to uh, other beings. And so that it's, um, in terms of right effort, what we're aiming to do is to, to clearly recognize that the, um, the arising of those, of the, the habit of identifying with another's suffering or the, the habit of, of shutting down, seeing those self-based inclinations arising. Um, and if they arise, then to, to 
to consciously let go of that, or to to be conscious, you know, or even before they arise, to to be aware of that being as being a uh, a um, a source of of um, difficulty, and to restrain those those sort of self-based urges from arising, and then to consciously cultivate this quality of listening listening to our own thoughts, listening to our own moods, listening to, to others. Um, and on that, from that basis of, of deep listening, uh, from really attending to each other, to then allow the heart to respond, guided by, by its attunement to the time and the place and the, and the situation, so that there's a, a, um, a readiness to respond. So sometimes when we talk in these terms, or, or like we talk about, say, listening or just attending or, or, or practicing wisdom, then it can it can seem to represent a kind of passivity, a kind of you're just sort of being a data reception point, you know, feeling, hearing, knowing, and so it doesn't it always seem as though there's a there's an uh, an outgoing element from that, but. Um, one of the uh, the aspects of um, the Buddhist teaching that I find very helpful is just in the word that the Buddha used to describe himself or the, to refer to himself was Tathagata. And this is made up of two pieces. This is a little Pali lesson. Then. So, tat, uh, the word Tat or Tata means thus or such. And the word Gata means uh, to go. And agata means to come. The A at the beginning makes a negative. So for for centuries, millennia, there's been the debate, did the Buddha really mean tat agata, thus come, or tata gata, thus gone? Gone to suchness or come to suchness? Is is he he totally here or is he totally gone? (laughs) Now the Buddha was a great wordsmith. And he and he loved double meanings and word plays, and so my pet theory, um, founded on no uh, great knowledge whatsoever, but my theory is that he deliberately chose an ambiguous term, because when we talk in terms of, of wisdom or of, of letting go and these kind of things, sometimes it feels like we're trying to enter into some sort of passive state. It's like that which is totally transcendent, gone, you know, nothing is self. Um, uh, everything is empty, but the uh, the other element is that that of immanence, along with the transcendence, uh, the immanence of of being totally here. That the Buddha principle is not just totally transcendent; it's also completely immanent. That wise, knowing quality of our own heart, it's necessarily immanent. It's it's uh, attuned to the present, and and it's totally connected to to all things, so that. When um, we're looking at this quality of, of true wisdom, then it's not just a sort of abstracted or, or remote sort of position of observing or listening and, and, and disconnection. It's both that transcendent quality, but there's also this utter connection, which is where the compassion element comes in, because it's implying that that when that the Buddha principle is truly uh, clarified, and there's not only that utterly transcendent view of things, there's also that connectedness and the response that comes forth from that, uh, the, 
the way that we relate to life. You need to have the, the, the wisdom element first of, of truly kind of letting go and, and you know, working on your own life first. And then from that, then comes from that, that utterly clear basis, that, uh, that open center, then there comes forth action which is harmonious uh, towards others. So the, the last thing I'll, I'll say on this is um, there's a very well-known little discourse which outlines the, the Buddha's re- uh, own view on, on working on yourself and, and, and help, helping yourself and helping others. And it's called the, the Discourse of the Bamboo Acrobats. Um, and it's, there's this, uh, 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 a street uh, acrobats in India um, some of you might have, have encountered such people when you've been traveling there. But uh, in uh, one of the, the kind of um, standard street theater things to do is we, uh, you have a, the, um, a, a guy holding up a, a pole and then a little child will climb up the pole and do sort of um, acrobatic tricks while the, the, you know, the, the pole's sort of being balanced in the air. And if, if you've ever seen a book called The Fine Balance by Rohit Mystery, the novel... On the front cover, there's a, a, at the bottom of the cover, there's a finger, and on the top of the, the, the finger, there's this pole, and at the top of the pole, there's this little kind of five-year-old girl doing the performance. There's a photograph. And so, um, in the time of the Buddha, there was such a little um, acrobatic troupe, and the little girl in this was called Frying Pan. Was her, I don't know why, but that was her name. Her name was Frying Pan. And so then um, the, um, the um, uh, senior acrobat said, climb up the pole, little frying pan, and uh, if you get up, you climb up the pole and you, know, you do your performance and, you, and then um, you do a good job and you come down safely from the pole. Like, uh, you know, when, when you're up there, I'll look after you and then you look after me and that way we'll, we'll do a good performance and we'll get a, a good fee and you'll come down safely from the pole. And she says, that's not the way it is at all. That's not how it should be, Master. Um, when I climb up the pole, I should look after myself. I look after my job, and you look after yourself. You look after your job. That's the way that um, uh, I'll get up the pole, I'll do a good performance, we'll get a good fee, and I'll come down safely. So if, uh, and then when the, the, um, uh, the Buddha recounted this story, he said, in this case... Uh, the little girl, she was right and her teacher was wrong. That it's like, uh, she was right in saying that I look after myself, you look after yourself. And then that's the way that we'll actually do a good job. Because you know, if we're thinking of the other first and ourselves second, we're always kind of slightly disconnected from what we need to do. So it's like the guy, like, you've got to balance that pole on your finger. Don't worry about her. You just... <laughs> You just pay close attention to that, that, that pole resting on your finger. That's what you've got to do. And so, then the Buddha says, this is how we truly, to, in order to benefit others, um, uh, by practicing the, the four foundations of mindfulness, we truly benefit ourselves. By benefiting ourselves, we truly benefit others. That's how we bring about the, the best with our lives. So he outlines that very clearly, that Yes, we do need to pay close attention to our own insight, our own practice. But the purpose of doing that is not just to benefit ourselves, but the natural result of that is benefiting others.
into the bargain. So, um, we'll have a sitting, a, gu- a little period of guided meditation now. So if you want to just stretch your legs for a minute and then put <coughs> yourselves comfortably. There's plenty more room to sit down over here if people need, and there's cushions and mats. First of all, just bringing attention into the body, letting the spine be straight, but relaxed and at ease. Just giving ourselves a a moment or two just to settle down, let ourselves be still.
and turning our attention towards the faculty of hearing. Just notice what we can hear right now. Sounds in the room, sounds out in the street, without making any particular judgment, just turning the attention to the ears, the faculty of hearing. Just listen to what is present for a few minutes. sound of the passing cars, subtle movements of people in the room, little electrical hums, the sound of my voice. the whole complex of sounds that we hear. And maybe underneath them all we can detect what's called the inner sound, the high-pitched, gentle ringing tone there in the background of our hearing, like a, a constant stream of white noise. Taking a moment just to let ourselves listen without judgment. Simply attending, hearing, knowing. Now inevitably, waves of thought, feeling, arise within us. Plans for tomorrow, anxieties, memories of today, last week, last year. random thoughts, ideas.
So as different things come up in the mind, just to help clarify what these are. When there's a different wave of, of mood or feeling, just state that to yourself, what that is. thinking about tomorrow. I wonder what that strange feeling is, that sensation in my right foot. What is that? listening to the different voices of our mind, the annoyed ones, the gentle ones, the childish ones, the intellectual ones. Just as they come up, just training ourselves to listen to the mind, listening to thought, just as we listen to the sound of the traffic, the sounds of the room. This is ridiculous. This is great. What is this? Whatever it might be, there's no right or wrong thought. We're just training the heart to, to listen. Judgments of good or bad. I am a hopeless meditator. I'm really quite good at this, actually. Not believing in the judgments or rejecting them. Just listening. Just cultivating this compassionate heart that, that attends, that listens. Takes it all in, knows it, lets it go. Just like the breath.
seeing if we can find the place where we relate to our own thoughts, just like relating to the sound of the traffic, the electrical hum. Just because I think it, why should it be true? So without identifying, even with memories and ideas, Not identifying, nor rejecting. It's finding that place in the heart that can fully attend, listen to it. And let it go. the agonized complaints, the excited fantasy. It's the same heart that listens to them both.
regardless of what arises in terms of the content of thought and mood keep making the effort to come to this place of a silent listening just as if we were hearing a, a radio station We don't have to reject our thoughts, believe in them, make any judgments about them. Even if the thoughts are full of judgment themselves, this is right, that's wrong, I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I hate that. The more we truly open the heart to simply listen to all the voices of the committee. We begin to touch that quality of genuine compassion. Wow. I get so stirred up. Poor thing, he suffers so much. Some thoughts are like great thundering engines. Some are the subtle little murmurings. Just let them be clarified. Sometimes we can also just state them clearly to ourselves. <clears throat> 
not to believe in their content, but simply to clarify what they're asserting. The, the easier, therefore, to let them go. I realize it takes um, <coughs> often takes a little bit of a more of a firm basis of kind of stable attention to really use that kind of meditation practice most effectively but uh, I thought I'd just put it out there for everyone just to see how uh, uh, how well uh, that might work but uh, please feel free to ask any questions or bring anything up that uh, you'd like to have clarified or anything I've said is uh, not needs a little bit of elaboration so please ask away
than in the response and the struggling with the children and dealing with the suffering and helping them learn to deal with it themselves. That I just find myself feeling overwhelmed. I have no more left to give. Mm-hmm. Maybe you comment on that. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's a good, a very good question. Um, Yeah, I, I think it relates a lot to what uh, I was saying a little earlier about that identification with the suffering of others and that um, it really is a matter of finding that point where we can empathize with others' suffering without getting swept into it. And that's very hard because it's it's very personal, those situations that it's like it's a, a, a you know a, a face-to-face situation. You're right in it, and and so that's in a way why doing sort of exercises or, uh, um, and you know cultivating these kind of skills is helpful. So that then once you are, are sort of in the field or you're in the emergency room and it's sort of face-to-face with that situation, then. It, in a way, you've trained yourself, like, oh, I know where to go with this. Yes, I'm face-to-face with this person. Yes, they're suffering. But yes, this is all being held in a bigger context. So um, it's n- we're not just trying to develop it when we're face-to-face. It's like, you know, you, you need to practice when they're not using real bullets. You know? mm-hmm. So that the more that we, we bring up this kind of... Um, Work and and train ourselves in this way, and so that um, in the one way you can also do it is to to, to develop this kind of skill is just in, in your meditation bringing to mind things that arouse that that sense of 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 compassion and empathy with others, and then just seeing if uh, how you know we instantly get drawn into the story. Or we, you know, shut shut it out and and close down and say, okay, can I just listen to this? Can I feel it? And then, because you're not in a face-to-face situation, it's just you and your zafu, you know. And then, yeah, but then you you slowly, but the more you work with it, you slowly find a way that, oh yeah, I can I can listen to my own thoughts. I can listen to my loves and hates. I can be with that. I can remember that particular scene or that or think of this person who is who is suffering a lot, and yeah, that can be held. There is a place, there's a balancing point where that can be held. Aha! So it's like you're like doing um, musical scales in a, in a, uh, on a piano by yourself. You know, you do a lot of scales so that then when you're, you're finally trying to play a piece, you're out on stage, you, you know, your fingers know where to go. And it's, it's hard, it's, it's very difficult to um, be in those kind of situations without some sort of preparation or some kind of um, real resource like that. So it's um, I think it's a it's a great the m- and also the 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 more that one cultivates that, the more you're able to embody it. The more that actually communicates itself to other people around you. So it's actually a great gift to the people that you're with that. You're, you are empathizing with them, but you're not being swept up in, in the, the anguish or the difficulty, the turbulence in, in a way. And that's, a, that's also 
a gift to the situations. I don't know if that's helpful. In my own experience, is, is like if, if you cultivate it skillfully, that you don't get the fatigue. It's, uh, there's because it's to my, my you know, the fi- what I find is the more the more personally I take it, the more exhausting it is. And that um, and yeah, again, sometimes I, I was having a conversation with someone earlier this evening that I was referring to is that sometimes you're with people and it's not an emergency room situation. It's more of a a, a kind of um, psychological neediness situation. Or um, and that that there can be a lot of demand being placed on you, and that someone can seem to be like an an, an like an endless um, sort of a uh, like a a bottomless pit, and you know an endlessly hungry mouth. And so that uh, what the conversation we were having earlier was that. We can feel quite sort of callous or, or like hard, you know, hard-hearted to say, you know, look, this isn't doing you any good, you know, and that we're backing off, and that we can feel intimidated, or, or that we're, um, we we could be doing better, or we're being hard-hearted in that backing off. So similarly, in the kind of situation you're describing, um, there can be these times where it's like there's nothing more that we can do or that we know I'm totally exhausted here I can't give anything more to this situation and then we, when we, we um, or, uh, or we're incapable of comforting another say something can't, somebody can't be consoled so we can go away from that feeling like oh I could have done better or if only I had or if that we've, we've fallen short and so we can feel self-critical because of not being able to stop everybody else suffering. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in a similar way, um, one of the things that I think it's really helpful to understand, and I found I, I couldn't, I didn't even have a, a concept of before I encountered Buddhism, was that if, you know, it was my, it was my job to help everybody not suffer. And if they were still suffering, then it was my fault because I just didn't do enough. And if I tried harder or had more capacities, I could have stopped that. But what I encountered when I was first in, in Asia, it really took me a couple of years to actually figure out what it was, was that seeing that there was this way that, that people, this was, and this was in northeast Thailand where I was living, there was a way that people could, they did what they could do, and then they, they knew their limits, and then what they couldn't do, they didn't have any regrets about. They didn't feel like there was anything missing. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't believe that. I just, because my, my assumption, we well, no, you've got to do more, and it's really bad that we can't do, we can't help more, like more can't be done. It'd be. And then there was this a whole different energy to it that took me a long time to even understand at all, that, that they really didn't experience anything missing. If they had a bigger capacity, they would help more, but they don't, so they can't. 
So there you are. And I think, but, 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 but. <laughs> you know, no, no, we should, we could. Well, no, we can't. I mean, not right now. And so that, that in a way, getting to know our own limits and feeling at ease in our limits is another part of this, of this practice, is that to really, the, the more that we develop compassion coming from that you know, basis of genuine attunement to the situation, then we know, oh, well this is as much as I can do, and if I, if I could do more, I would do more, I can't, so I, I'm, I'm not going to get anxious about it. And that, having that kind of spaciousness in the mix is also an incredible gift. Even when someone's clamoring, no, help me, help me, help me, it's like, sorry. I, and it's not because you're hard-hearted or you're shutting down, it's just, there's a li- there's the, that's the limit, there's nothing left in the bag, you know, for whatever reason it might be. And then being able to feel completely okay with that. And that's strange for us, right? But it's, it's, it's possible, and I, I found that incredibly valuable, because I, I suffered, I mean, the, 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 <laughs> I suffered enormously over that, over the, you know, the early years. But then, it's a kind of miracle. Thing. Wow, <laughs> you can actually walk away from a situation and say, "Well, I didn't solve it, and that's okay." And not because you don't care. It's not like you're being cheap or you didn't try hard enough. But there's a—it's like the wisdom of knowing limitation of the system. Did people find that meditation? Oh, that's fun. I'm wondering about the action part. Um, maybe that's next week's. <laughs> <laughs> if you can let go when you're sitting with the open heart, you said then the action comes from the heart. But how do you know how to act once you're there? Is it, is it just from the heart? Do we just trust that it will be the right action? Or do we mind involved? Well, the, the way that I, I tend to function in that is actually, I'll ask myself those sort of questions. Okay, uh, not because you're trying to think your way to a logical conclusion, but it's more in that, that same sort of meditative space, that sort of, like I was describing in the sitting, where you're, you're trying to just listen, like really attend to the situation. And so then, um, from that place of inner quietude, then you ask yourself a question. So, what's the best thing to do with this situation? You know, or what can we what can we do, what can we do about such and such? And so that in that you're you're drawing upon your own intuitive wisdom, which is like the heart's fundamental connectedness to the situation. So even if your brain doesn't understand it, you know the. <laughs> There's a, a way that what we you know, call our intuition or our common sense or, or our, our um, in a way, the innate attunement of our, of our nature to the nature of things around us. So that uh, sometimes what come, comes up, if uh, you, know, uh, you know, I put a question like that if I'm confronted with the situation, then 
the, what comes up is, don't know. Right now, it's just it's too foggy. You know, you can't know. It's like it's not a matter of blinking a few more times. No, you know, if the fog is, is this thick, it's like it's not a matter of blinking or putting on your glasses. It's like, no, you have to just wait and see how things will shift and let the, the fog lift, and then you can see from there. Yeah, other times it'll be, you know, very clear that when you just lay aside all of the rights and wrongs and the, the idealisms, that actually it's like, well, just go for it, you fool. You know, <laughs> what are you waiting for? You know, are you out of your mind? And like, oh, right. Or, or it might be, don't touch anything. You know. <laughs> or whatever. You, know, you, you, can't, you have to, in a way, clear the slate for, uh, as much as possible all of your agendas and fears, <coughs> all of your desired outcomes, and just go to that place of, of, of quietude and say, okay, well, what have we actually got here? Yeah. And, and, um, and then just see what arises within that, that space. So I actually use the meditation for that quite often. So sometimes people think, no, meditation is about you know, making the mind stop and, you know, and, and not think. But in, a, in fact, this is when we can do our best thinking. So because you're not using thought just in terms of like, uh, finding a logical conclusion or figuring something out by um, me- using memory or imagination or, or, or logic, but you're you're just using that the the um, the medium of conceptual thought to to what in your heart of heart your in your heart of hearts you already know to be true. It's like Ajahn Chah used to because he was amazing uh, in the way he would respond to people that he would almost almost never, this is our, our teacher in Thailand, when people would come and ask him a question, he'd almost never answer the question in the terms in which it was asked. It would be like he would, you know, if he received the question, he was like he'd, he'd sort of take the question and sort of pull it to pieces and then hand you the pieces back. <laughs> and one of, his, one of the tricks he used to do was to, and my, my command of Thai was very, very rudimentary, but I could see how he did this over and over again, was that he would get people to answer their own questions. And uh, I keep meaning to, to learn how to do this. <laughs> but, uh, and you would see him doing this over and over again, and that, uh, and that people would answer their own questions. Even when they swore, they were in a total quandary and had been in terrible doubt for weeks and months. Then, you know, within a few minutes often, he would, they would answer their own question. And somebody, I remember very vividly someone asking him how he did that, or how, how it could be that people so, you know, invariably were able to answer their own questions. And he said, if you didn't already know the answer, you wouldn't have been able to pose the question in the first place. So the very fact that the question forms means that we, something in us, buried a few layers down, already knows, but we're formulating the question to try and sort of tease that out. So he would say, you go from the, you start at the point where they're, they've got to with the question, and you just follow that back through to where it came from. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, 
really pursuing that same kind of process within ourselves. Okay, that well, there's this question. So the fact that this is formulated, maybe that means that there's something in me that already understands this situation, and that it's just in a way drawing upon that and trusting that and listening to that. And then you see the other the other element of it is then watching what the results of our actions are. It's called uh, vimangsa in Pali. That's rather than just okay, I've made my decision, you know, let's go, you know. I, it's like okay, well, I've made my decision. Okay, let's go, and now let's see where where we're going. <laughs> and then okay, that seems to be on track. Okay, are we? So, where are we going from here? Okay, well, now let's, is we still on track? Yeah, we're still on track. So there's this, a feedback of, rather than just having an idea and, and carrying on regardless, there's that, you know, looking back and seeing, okay, is this where we wanted to go? Uh, what are we doing with this? So, so, like, in those examples of, say, yes, you want to protect the environment, but now you've made your life into a battleground, you know, with all these people that you hate. Or that, yeah, you want to protect human life, but now you're in jail for murdering some, you know, a, a doctor at an abortion clinic. So, yes, you wanted to protect life, but where's it taking you to? What's the result of, of your actions? So that then that is like a, 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 a steady feeding back and reflecting on how how well the, the goals are being met, or the, in, the intentions are being fulfilled. We will talk about it a bit more next week. <laughs> Were people able to get any benefit from that kind of meditation? Yeah. yeah I, I, uh, I learned a lot of this from Ajahn Sumedho. And he's uh, extremely, um, he uses this, this kind of meditation a lot and, and really teaches it well. So one way you can use it is also just like spelling out the sort of murmurings. You know, oftentimes things are often sort of murmuring in the wings. Like, you know, you really are a pretty useless person. <laughs> like, you call this meditation? You're <laughs> you're, or it can be... You know, I really am quite special, you know. I mean, there's nice people who come to this group, but very few of us are really actually. Sp- I know, I mean, really, Ajahn Amaro is talking to me, <laughs> the spirit, especially spiritually advanced one. Yeah, so it's like there's the little murmurings of things that are off in the wings that we don't quite sort of trust, or we don't we don't let them be conscious, and it's getting them out of the wings and getting them onto the center stage. Okay, you know, speak up. So then we when we actually phrase it like. This person sitting next to me, who just cleared their throat for the fifteenth time, (laughs) if they just died (laughs) and shut up, then I would be able to meditate. You know, you just, then as soon as you can't even say it and keep a straight face, you know, it's because it's ridiculous. But that's what we're feeling. It's like, I wish they just die or just go or not be there. Don't they know I'm trying to meditate? Yeah. And so when we, we, we actually spell it out, 
what our presumptions are, what our beliefs are, what our hopes are, what our fears are. And it's uh, amazing how, we, how much we, we, A, realize how our life is driven by <laughs> the murmurers and, and its kind of half-conscious attitudes, and how when we bring them into the full light of attention, so many of them are, are, are ridiculous. And uh, they, uh, and in, it's not like we just make them shut up and go away, but we can more relate to them in a in a skillful manner, so that we uh, we're hearing them, or they're those those sort of pompous or self-critical or or anxious um, voices can carry on, but we just don't give them so much power, so much credibility uh, in our lives. We just let them uh, you know, do their thing, but we don't build our life around them uh, so much. And you can have a lot of fun with it as well. You know? you can, taking them to absurdity. Sometimes. Like, I am probably the world's worst meditator. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. There can't be anyone as quite as incompetent as I am. Now, I'm sure I get I get into distraction even, you know, probably within like at least half a second. As soon as my eyes close, that's it. Now, no one can be as bad as I am. You know, whatever you know, you can extrapolate your own particular favorite um, things. But it's uh, the point is to help clarify you know, the different influences that that are brought to bear on us. And the more we're able to to listen to the flow of our own moods and our own thoughts and develop that genuine sort of compassionate heart for this one, for for ourselves, and to and to be able to celebrate its benefits and and, um, and commiserate with its shortcomings, then we find ourselves much more able to, to function that way with other people, that we can we find ourselves far more forgiving for others when we um, we just learn to be a little bit more um, circumspect. Like when I was, I was in Portland just recently and someone gave me a couple of bumper stickers which said, uh, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> so kind of Buddhist bumper sticker. <laughs> and so that's really significant. Why? Because I think, what, what, just because I think it, why should that mean that something is true? I mean, I, I say this kind of thing over and over again, but it's, it's like some sort of great revelation. It's like, oh yeah, if I think it, I tend to believe this is truth. What, why on earth should that be? And so just to, we train ourselves to listen to our thoughts more like we're just listening to the radio, why, do you, why should you believe everything on the radio is being true? It's like, no way! Even if it's not true, it's certainly not all meaningful. All those kind of goopy love songs and you know, pop music and such like. It's a, why, why give that too much credibility? And so then the more we're able to do that with ourselves, and the more we're able to do that with others, and then we we find ourselves much more tolerant and able to give space to others. So, well, okay, you know, she says that, but you know, I don't have to accept it or reject it. It's just 
things that you know, people say sometimes, no big deal. So that our whole world gets a lot more roomy. And that the, the whole question of burnout, which is so um, prevalent in the sin of um, compassionate services and, and work, that uh, so much of it is relieved by, you know, by learning to not take it all so personally. You know, that you're, you're able to, um, in a way, listen to the sound of the world and just be able to, you know, when you're, when you're in a situation and you're, you're training yourself not to identify with your own moods and thoughts and those of others, to just be able to reflect, yeah, this is the sound of the world. This is the way the, the world is. And then there's this strange capacity that we find that we can digest the situation. We're not rejecting it, we're not running away from it, we're not swept up in it. But there's this um, uh, at ease with it. And that um, so much of that is based around this capacity that we have to, to listen, just to to uh, attend and, and working with our own thoughts, just like I was saying with the bamboo acrobat. You know, once we once we really learn how to do it with number one, then that extends out so much uh, more easily to others. And we can hear other people ranting and raving and doing their thing, and say, "Oh, well, thank you for sharing." <laughs> we don't have to. Um, believe what others are thinking either. So that we're, there's this kind of uh, respect for, for what lies beneath and, and behind all of that uh, thinking and emoting that we and others do. And then that's where the, the, the root of compassion and empathy is that we start to relate to that, that fundamental quality rather than just being caught up by the, all of the ripples on the surface of particular individual tragedies or crises or, or injustices and difficulties of one kind or another. <coughs> so I'm sure that um, many of you have more preparations to, <laughs> to do, places to go for your Thanksgiving uh, tomorrow. Maybe you don't. If anyone doesn't have anything to do tomorrow, come to them. You're welcome to come to Abhayagiri. Join in our very low-key Thanksgiving <laughs> lunch, which is uh, we have early in the day, 11, uh, 10.30 actually. But um, if you want a peaceful place to, uh, to be, then uh, the monastery is always open. Christmas and Thanksgiving are generally very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> media-free uh, events, uh, so please uh, do feel very welcome to come along. I will close the evening with the uh, sharing of blessings. <coughs>